This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Tammy Bruce. I'm Juan Williams. I'm Shannon Bream, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, June 22nd, 2023. I'm Chris Foster. The Supreme Court has more big opinions to announce. This is not just an issue alone of is it fair or not for people who didn't go to college to pay for people to go to college when Congress didn't vote for it, but also a question of the right balance of powers between our legislature and the president. I'm Alex Hogan. Imagine receiving a call from your child screaming that they had been kidnapped, but it's not real. It's all a lie with scammers using artificial intelligence to recreate your child's voice. The crying and the sobbing, neither one of us, we've gone through all of our stuff to try and figure out where they got that. That's what baffles me the most. And I'm Greg Jarrett. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Supreme Court announces more opinions today and tomorrow. We've already gotten decisions on voting rights, Native American adoptions, the Clean Water Act, big tech, terrorism, and other issues. There are 18 cases pending, and the court is again saving some of the biggest opinions for last this term. There's election redistricting, religious liberty. A Colorado website designer doesn't want to make websites for gay weddings. Like other artists, my decision on what I create is custom and always based on the message, never about the person requesting the message. There are some messages I can't create no matter who requests them. They can't decide that because of your sexual orientation or your religion, you can't purchase the product. That's what this case is about. Lori Smith and Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser there after arguments in December. There are also cases about President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan and affirmative action in college admissions. The most important case is the Harvard admissions case against the use of race in emissions. John Hughes, a law professor at the University of California, Berkeley, a former deputy assistant attorney general and a writer. His new book is The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. This could change the way our universities and colleges work because I think many of the listeners will know the diversity agenda has just infused itself all throughout the way colleges and universities work. But it's also a question of fundamental fairness that the government and the state institutions the government gives money to should not judge people based on their skin color. And this is the one area of life where the Supreme Court still allows it. And I think the court will put an end to it. The second major decision that we're all waiting for is the one about Biden canceling all the student debt in the country. The decision not made with Congress, which is in control of the purse that would cost taxpayers hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. This is not just an issue alone of, is it fair or not for people who didn't go to college to pay for people to go to college when Congress didn't vote for it, but also a question of the right balance of powers between our legislature and the president. We've already gotten one case about elections in Alabama. We'll get to that in a second. There's this other one about gerrymandering in North Carolina. Could this have pretty big implications if it goes a certain way? Oh, yes, Chris. I'm sorry I didn't mention the Moore versus Harper case, which does have the potential to be a very revolutionary case, because what it says 
is that state legislatures are in charge of drawing congressional districts, not the courts, not the governor, maybe not even federal district courts. And so if the court ruled for North Carolina's legislature and said, as under the Constitution, as the text says, only the state legislature regulates elections, you could see a lot of fighting in the lead up to the 2024 elections between state legislatures that tried to reclaim their power to draw districts, to set the rules, not just districts, also to set the rules for voting. And other bodies that have been trying, as they did successfully, I think, in 2020, try to take that power away from state legislatures, especially unelected judges. The most extreme concern about what could come out of this is that, is there a reading of the law that state legislatures could flat out decide elections, not just set the rules, but say, we are the final arbiter of who wins an election? Yes, Kerr, that's a great point. If the Supreme Court really went far, I think actually this is what the founders intended when they wrote this provision of the Constitution. State legislatures could just decide a certain kinds of elections, not all of them, but the one that would be most, you know, top of the list for most people would be presidential electors. The Constitution actually says that state legislatures decide how to pick electors. Most states have given that to the people through direct popular vote in their states. But the Constitution says you don't have to do that. You could see, because of the questions raised by the 2020 elections, people start to say, well, in the next set of presidential elections, what happens if there is voter fraud? What happens if there is conflict in the state amongst the branches of government? You could see state legislatures try to reclaim the right even to pick presidential electors. Uh, The other case I mentioned in Alabama that was already announced That could help Democrats win back the House, um, theoretically, especially if other states with Republican legislatures that have made their that have had their maps questioned. Um, Are you as surprised as a lot of people about that ruling? I wasn't as surprised. I was expecting the court actually to go the other way. But I could see why this majority came to this view. And the hard question is, as I was saying, in general, the Constitution says state legislatures draw the congressional districts and they decide all the rules for voting. But after the Civil War, we also passed a constitutional amendment saying that the equality for the right to vote cannot be taken away because of your race. And so the exception to all of these hands-off rules that the courts apply to elections don't apply if race is involved. And so if the courts are going to get involved and say, we're going to try to prevent discrimination on the basis of race and voting... I could see where a majority of the court might say, okay, then that means we've got to review the drawing of congressional districts if we think it's done to suppress the voting of, say, Blacks in the South. I would have preferred the court not go down this route. And I think maybe this court is not ready for a radical departure, which this case would have represented. That's something that's said about Chief Justice Roberts, is that he prefers, first of all, maybe incremental change. And second of all, he doesn't put up with what he sees as spurious arguments. Like even if he might agree in the end with what your position might be, if you don't argue it correctly under the law, he's not going to go for it. That's right. If you look at what Chief Justice Roberts has done, for example, in this question of race and voting, ultimately, he did strike down part of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which required Southern states to basically go to the Justice Department or court every time they wanted to change any voting rule. But it took him time. And he, as you said, made a number of incremental, maybe evolutionary decisions to get there. While you also have justices like Thomas, who I clerked for, or Justice Alito, 
who are in favor of more radical approach. If they think, you know, those initial decisions are wrong, just get rid of them and start over again. That's definitely not Chief Justice Roberts' way of thinking. Uh, there's a religious freedom case in Colorado that's interesting to me because it's brought by somebody who says they don't want to be forced to do something that nobody's asked them to do yet. Uh, there's this wedding website designer says, I don't want to do websites for same-sex weddings. Nobody's asked her to. Is this one of these cases that sort of shepherded to the court and taken up by the justices because they want to weigh in? I think this is one of the areas where the Roberts Court has made a lot of advances, and that's in the protection of religious freedoms. And what you're seeing more broadly is, I don't think it's the court that's going out and reaching for these cases. I think there are groups in the states which are passing new kinds of anti-discrimination laws that don't just include race and gender, but include things like sexual orientation. And so that, I think, is bumping up against the free speech and religious rights of people who honestly and in good faith don't believe in things like gay marriage or don't believe in uh, transsexual relations or whatever. And so I think that's what's happening. It's not that the court's trying to grab for those issues. It's that there are these changes going on at the states which are bringing this idea of diversity into direct conflict with some of the basic freedoms in the Bill of Rights, and the court's going to ultimately have to resolve them sooner or later. Maybe because of the view, rightly or wrongly, that the court is more politicized than it has been in the past, um, there's been more talk about ethics at the court. It's really been a self-policing thing up until now. We had Clarence Thomas uh, and now Samuel Alito accused of inappropriate ties to big Republican donors. They say, look, we're allowed to have friends. What do you? How does the court deal with this stuff, especially in the, in, in the court of public opinion? I think what people should understand, first off, is that there's this uh, attack on the ethics of the justices is not a coincidence. Uh, I think these attacks are being brought by people and organizations who dislike the direction that the court's going in right now, that dislike that the court uh, returned abortion to the states last year in Dobbs, or that uh, decided that there's some protections for the right to have guns and are worried that the court's about to strike down the use of race in college admissions. The second thing is, there, I do think it is right, as you said, that the justices have sort of self-regulated their own ethics. I don't think that's for any kind of nefarious reason, though. It's because, again, it's an underlying principle of our separation of powers. How much do we want Congress regulating the way the courts do business. Because if they start regulating the way justices decide, then they might start interfering or pressuring the justices into deciding certain ways. You've had your head uh, in the Supreme Court for a while now, researching and writing this book, this new book um, called The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. Uh, what's the premise? Who's it for? Oh, thanks for mentioning the book. It's, uh, it's really for people who are not lawyers. It's for people who want an introduction to the Supreme Court. It's for people who are interested in all the questions that you've just asked me about, but written, I hope, in a way that's non-technical, non-legalese. I think it's a great Christmas gift if you're already shopping early. <laughs> I think it's a great gift for student, college students, high school students, people who are you know interested and educated, but they don't want to go to three years of law school. Right. Uh, just one thing in the book, um, there's an overrule wish list. Um, you mentioned Dred Scott and and um, in the Dobbs decision. What's on what's on your list that um, that you think the court got wrong? Ah, well, the, the number one is the one we've been talking about, the, the Supreme Court's decision. It's originally called Backey, which allowed the use of race in college admissions. I think that has 
uh, got to go. But there are other important decisions, and, and people may not be as aware of it, but they have a sense of it, that the federal government has gotten too big. That's intruding into all of our lives. It's micromanaging all of our lives. And I think that traces back to a series of decisions where the Supreme Court basically said, we're not going to really check how far Congress decides to regulate. We're really not going to check the creation of all these new administrative agencies that bring in experts to manage our lives. I think if people were upset with the way that the COVID lockdowns were managed, they're upset with this gigantic federal bureaucracy that we have steadily lost control over. So I would like to see those decisions that gave the bureaucracy so much power, gave the bureaucracy so much independence. I would like to see those reversed. Okay, again, that book is called The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. It's by John Yu, my man right here, and uh, Robert J. Delahunty is the co-author. Uh, John Yu is the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California at Berkeley. John, thanks for coming on the Fox News Rundown. Oh, thanks. I really enjoyed it. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is Greg Jarrett with your Fox News commentary coming up. How do you drop rules around artificial intelligence given how quickly it changes and evolves? U.S. President Joe Biden traveled to San Francisco, California this week discussing those questions about AI with advocates and civil society leaders saying, My administration is committed, is committed to safeguarding America's rights and safety, from protecting privacy to addressing bias and disinformation, to making sure AI systems are safe before they are released. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Antony Blinken traveled to London this week and echoed President Biden's concern calling for guardrails. To maximize innovation to use AI for good while minimizing the risks that it represents. Those risks often refer to dangers to the public like privacy infringements. For one mom in Scottsdale, Arizona, her experience was so traumatic, it was impossible for her at first to believe that it was artificial intelligence. So I received a call and it was my daughter, or at least I believed it to be my daughter, calling me to say that she had messed up and she was crying and sobbing and then proceeded to have uh, a man interject and tell her to lay down and put her head back. And then she proceeded to tell me that these bad men have her and that she needed help and was crying and pleading for my help as a man took over the phone and told me that he had kidnapped my daughter that I either had to comply or that he was going to harm her, leave her for dead, I was never see her again. And at that point, I uh, went into a bit of a crisis mode, had some help of some other moms around me, luckily, who were able to call 911. Another one was able to call and eventually get my husband on the phone, who was able to locate my daughter, and we were able to secure that she was safe. Uh, but in that process, the ransom went from a million dollars to $50,000. And then they were refusing a wire transfer. They wanted to physically come pick me up. They were going to transport me to my daughter with cash. Otherwise, we both were going to be dead. And even after I was able to speak to my daughter and secure her safety, and I called them out on the scam, they continued to persist that they still had my daughter and they were still going to kill her um, if I didn't listen. And that's when I hung up on them and then called the police. 
they were trying to call your bluff, um, hoping that you had not been some victim who was able to get in touch with your daughter. I mean, this this must have been completely terrifying for you. How long did this whole process, this whole call take place? The process took just under four minutes um, from the time that they called based on the call log, but it was four minutes of terror in that process. I I can only imagine what you must have been feeling, what your husband must have been feeling. And thankfully, you had friends there to help navigate this, have someone call the police at the same time. There's actually a a scheme that used to take place years ago in Brazil. It was quite common where scammers would call victims. They would have someone screaming in the background, and then the caller would tell the victim that we have your child, we have your grandchild, that's them screaming, you need to send us money. Obviously, back then, a scream could be believable, but it was it was difficult to decipher whose voice that was. This felt so personal to you. Was there any doubt in your mind that this was your daughter's voice? There was no doubt in my mind. It was her voice coupled with the way she cries and sobs. And uh, I know when someone's that very high pitched and frantic and start to sound more or less the same. But with her, it wasn't a screaming. It wasn't a frantic cry like that. It was an internal, the way she usually cries and sobs. Um, and it wasn't just one comment. It was a, a conversation that went back and forth multiple times the way she would converse and the way she would communicate too. So I never for once doubted it was her. Yeah. And I imagine even though now you know it wasn't real, it might still feel like it was and you still felt all of those emotions. Yeah. That's unfortunately the lasting effect is that you have that lasting trauma of that experience of having your child begging for help and you're helpless and that fear of what's going to happen to them if you can't get to them. Unfortunately, the one that was most traumatized in this uh, was my 13-year-old daughter who heard the phone call because the sense was on speaker and I was asking her to help me locate her dad. And she froze in fear and the other mom went to her and then helped her make sure making those phone calls, which is how we were able to locate her older sister. But she heard all the threats that were being made about her sister and what was going to happen to her sister and what was going to happen to me. So she is the one, unfortunately, uh, the day after, for example, we were driving and she didn't want to go to the car at the gas station, even though she needed to use the ladies room because she was afraid when some men came up, uh, she got asked by this boy, hey, I think you're pretty. Would you like to hang out sometime? She's too young. But uh, she came running to me that this boy was asking to hang out with her because he wants to kidnap her. And so she's got this lasting trauma, this lasting thought process, hearing all those voices. I'm so sorry. And and as far as your daughter, the one whose voice was used, have you had any explanation from AI experts or lawmakers that you spoke with about how exactly they were able to mimic her voice and, and her reaction to all of this? I mean, does she feel like her voice has been taken, that she feels almost violated in a sense of losing this piece of privacy? So there obviously has to be some level of cyber stalking in order to know her voice correlates to her, which correlates to me and my phone number. So that's where I would love to see some action on what we can do to protect, especially children, Mm -hmm. uh, because they are obviously being cyber stalked in order to obtain this. Where uh, She's done a couple interviews. So the voice, she's not a very public person on social media. So I have a couple ideas where they might have up of some sports interviews and uh, school related interviews. That would be about it. But the crying and the sobbing, neither one of us, we've gone through all of our stuff to try and figure out where they got that. That's what baffles me the most. 
There are some tips that uh, politicians are giving to the public should this happen to them. Try to always call your loved one directly rather than going through the phone that this potential scammer could be calling you on. Did you receive any other advice from any other politicians or have you talked about this with your family about what you would do were this to ever happen again? Yeah. So another tip someone gave me, um, I haven't tried this obviously, but if you call 911 and you tell them this is what's happening, uh, you can ask them to send you over to the FBI and then that way the FBI can get involved while the process is happening. Um, so that was the suggestion that came back as well. So then that way it can be escalated. And have you had any responses from lawmakers or or experts about where they think this could be coming from? I have not had any responses. Um, to this day, I'm waiting for a follow-up from, I'm not, I haven't been identified who, uh, but AT&T looked into the matter and they said somebody would be contacting me, which always obviously makes that somewhat uncomfortable because I'm going to great lengths to avoid a lot of uh, unknown, or even when AT&T sent the information out to me, asking me for information back, I wouldn't respond to them for weeks because I don't really know who's who and who's really who they say they are. So I, but I haven't had those follow-ups yet. So I'm not sure where that has led to at this point. Yeah. And I know you spoke on Capitol Hill to try to advocate and share your story. So this hopefully doesn't happen to anyone else. What was your experience sharing that message? Uh, The experience was very positive. Uh, I was surprised, uh, honored that there was so much embracing and um, responsiveness to it. And even sitting with the other panel of experts, uh, they were very reassuring that the technology has this capability and uh, asking as well for us to have some kind of consequences, some kind of uh, responsibility with this technology. Otherwise, they're fearful for what this can do as well and what it already is doing in different capacities as well, like the deep fake videos um, with identity recognition, face recognition, et cetera. And so it gets when you start getting even to further down the line of what the technology can do and can enable, it gets even more frightening if it is left uncontrolled and unmanaged and without consequence. As lawmakers scramble to address these kinds of issues, it's something that experts are observing closely as well. From the consumer perspective, there's really no shortage of concerns. This is Jake Denton. He's a Heritage Foundation Tech Policy Research Associate. Biden is in Silicon Valley kind of doing the rounds, meeting with stakeholders. We've seen a lot of press conferences and photo ops, uh, but we haven't really seen any substantive uh, moves towards actual policies. So, you know, we're in a very interesting time where things are accelerating. Things are getting uh, a lot better very quickly. And there's really been no foundational layer of policy yet. Well, when you look at this from your perspective, are there any key things that stand out to you, ideas that you think seem like they should be no-brainers of what should be passed? What kind of regulations should people hope to see from their elected officials? Yeah, so one of the most uh, base level kind of foundational principles is what we refer to as AI explainability. Uh, Within these AI systems, there's what we refer to as deep uh, neural networks, these things that take in a lot of information 
and kind of train itself. And then it comes out on the other end with um, a, a finished product. And so explainability uh, aims to basically provide the consumer or the user of the technology a rationale behind why a certain decision was made. And so currently within this AI landscape, we don't know why ChatGPT produced a certain answer based off of a question. Uh, we don't know why a lot of these systems are coming to the conclusions that they do. And so by you know putting forward a piece of AI explainability legislation, we could actually have oversight over these systems, make sure they aren't biased, uh, make sure they aren't uh, discriminating against uh, the users or a population. Um, and as we see this begin to integrate within our own government systems, uh, within businesses, this will be increasingly important. Uh, President Biden earlier this month said that he had talked with officials and experts who said that AI, artificial intelligence, could overtake human thinking and change the character of future wars. What's your reaction to hearing that? Um, at this point in time, it seems as though we're living through an AI revolution, uh, whether it be the labor environment where, you know, certain jobs are just going to cease to exist, uh, whether it be the classroom where, you know, students maybe right now don't really even have to learn because they can just use this generative technology to write them a paper or even the information landscape where on social media, we're seeing deep fake generated content uh, capture a news cycle. But I think the biggest takeaway is that this is going to impact us across the board. Our lives are going to be completely different in a very short period of time, all things considered. We look at the exponential improvement of this technology and we really could just be days away from the next big break and it could change everything. So time is of the essence. You know, Our regulators really need to get ahead of this while they still have a chance. One argument that I've heard over and over when we talk about AI is that it is preventing a lot of creativity that would otherwise happen, and it's creating a much more unified response rather than allowing for more individualism. What do you think when it comes to that? I think that's absolutely correct, honestly. If you look at the generative technologies that are beginning to produce art, uh, it's very easy to see how this ends extremely poorly. Uh, it's sucking the creativity out of that industry and it's focusing on the kind of commodification of the output rather than the beauty of it. And it's very easy to see how, you know, if we fast forward 30 years into the future, we could still be artistically marooned in the 21st century because we've just stopped creating. We're using the inputs of these kind of large language models as the guide for artistic expression, then that's a very scary thing because, I mean, at the end of the day, where will we find beauty if everything's just going to be computer generated? Jake Denton, Heritage Foundation Tech Policy Reacher's Associate, thank you so much for your insight and for your time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Meet the American who invented the clean, wholesome corn dog. Stanley S. Jenkins was a U.S. businessman and a civic leader, but in 1927, he became the American Fryoneer, who first invented the classic deep-fried concoction, the All-American Corn Dog. Jenkins created the first machine for impaling hot dogs with a stick or a handle, covering them in batter and frying them in oil, calling the result a wholesome, tasty refreshment. Stanley's dream of bringing Americans a finer frankfurter quickly spread across the country, and today corn dogs are enjoyed by millions of Americans each year at state fairs and street festivals from coast to coast. Jenkins' invention has withstood the test of time and only grown more popular. 
Fletcher's original corny dogs say they sell up to 600,000 of the cornmeal-encrusted wieners each fall at the Texas State Fair. Born on the 4th of July in 1927, the corn dog king didn't just stop at serving folks deep-fried battered treats. As a member of the Buffalo City Council, he fought to try and limit the amount of foam allowed on a glass of beer. Declaring that too much foam on top meant too little beer for his constituents. While new fried food creations pop up each year, fair vendors agree the American corn dog remains a bestseller. The wiener and pint patriot left behind no wife or kids. However, Jenkins' legacy lives on through his delicious invention, sure to be enjoyed at every carnival or state fair, cementing his status as a colossus of American folk food. Go to the lifestyle section of foxnews.com to find more of these incredible stories. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Delosi. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Greg Jarrett. What's on your mind? The media's pronouncements that Donald Trump is almost certainly guilty of crimes are based on an ignorance of the law and a blinding political bias. The former president has several viable defenses, some of which will be offered in pretrial motions. Trump's principal defense rests with the Presidential Records Act, a law passed by Congress in 1978 that grants an exclusive right of former presidents to maintain custody and control of presidential papers. The defense will argue that that is a specific statute that takes precedence over a general statute like the Espionage Act, which accounts for most of the charges against Trump. They'll also cite a prior case involving Bill Clinton 11 years ago, in which the Justice Department argued that former presidents can keep whatever presidential records they want, including classified material, and the government has no authority to seize them. The judge agreed, and the judge's opinion reinforced the legal constraints on the Department of Justice. Their ability to seize documents is limited to a civil action, not criminal. The FBI did not raid Bill Clinton's home to reclaim classified material, nor the same home when his wife Hillary stored more than 100 classified documents on her personal server. Trump's defense team will argue that this is unequal application of the law and selective prosecution. That violates their client's due process rights guaranteed by the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment. You can also be assured that Trump's defense team will seek to exclude or suppress the testimony of his own lawyer, Evan Corcoran, who was forced to testify before the Washington grand jury prior to the indictment. The district judge ruled that the attorney-client privilege could be pierced under the so-called crime-fraud exception. But Trump's current attorneys will contend that that ruling was deeply flawed and erroneous. As for obstruction of justice, Trump's legal team will assert that if their client sincerely believed that he was entitled to the documents under the meaning of the Presidential Records Act, then he did not harbor the requisite corrupt intent that obstruction demands. It's not corrupt to want to keep what you think is yours, 
if you are genuinely convinced of it. Unaware of Trump's various defenses, the biased media has gobbled up every word of the indictment and treated it as if it were gospel. Veteran lawyers know better. Through experience, they realize that indictments are one-sided narratives with embroidered storytelling. Prosecutors also have a nasty habit of ignoring exculpatory material beneficial to the accused. They twist the law and contort the evidence in the most damning light possible, and sometimes they fail at proof. Of course, that is what trials are for. But first, special counsel Jack Smith must survive a flurry of dismissal motions to which the mindless media remains oblivious. I'm Greg Jarrett for Fox News. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. I've been saving the world for a while now on this podcast, and I'm ready to take it to the next level. Starting on June 26th, you can listen to me, Kennedy, five days a week right here. Listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.